Heads up, everybody. I'm B. Francis Clark. And I'm Anton Anderson. And this is Sky is Black, future-facing conversations with experts, innovators, and entrepreneurs of African descent. Spanning the entire African diaspora. Worldwide, baby. Worldwide. That's right. Shout out to the team at Brittle Paper. Brittle Paper is an online literary magazine for readers of African literature. You can follow them on Twitter at Brittle Paper and learn more at BrittlePaper.com. And shout out to Janae Norman, who is the new host of Good Morning America on the weekends. You can find out more about her by watching Good Morning America on ABC or you can go on the web at GoodMorningAmerica.com. Shout out to Elena Anna Lee Wicker, who was 13 years old and the youngest black person in the country to ever be accepted to a medical school. You can learn more about her story from our friends and family at blackenterprise.com. And shout out to Aminata Touré. She's the first black woman cabinet minister in Germany. Boom. She is the Minister of Social Affairs, Youth, Family, Seniors, Integration, and Equity. You can follow her on Instagram at A-M-I-N-A-J-M-I-N-A on Instagram. I think also on Twitter. We'll find out about that. Um, or you can you can see her active work in the German government. And shout out to the African Leadership Group. The African Leadership Group, founded by Fred Swanaker, is on a mission to transform Africa by developing 3 million ethical entrepreneurial leaders at a speed and scale never before seen. To learn more about the African Leadership Group, the African Leadership Academy, and the African Leadership University, you can follow on Twitter at AL Academy and learn more at ALGroup.com. Shout out to Nisha Butler, the former professional basketball player, has launched the first black and Latina woman-owned STEAM, that's Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts, and Math, Education Center in New York City. You can find out more about them at steamchamps.com. That's S-T-E-A-M-C-H-A-M-P-S.com. And thank you, fellow Wayfarers, for joining us in the Pure Vibranium Circle. So, we are a global podcast, and Mm -hmm. so we have to give a shout-out to our brothers and sisters in Aspen, in Munich, in Puebla, in Alexandria, in Fortaleza, in Port Harcourt, in Antanarivo, in Lubumbashi, in Birmingham, in Amsterdam, in Havana, in Atlanta, and everywhere the African diaspora is holding down a Wakanda suburb. Including the furthest depths of space yes have you seen this i mean this week they released the first images from the james webb space telescope and they are amazing have you looked at these pictures i have and they are awesome i mean they've got images of galaxies and nebula and stars and they've imaged the atmosphere of a planet and one of the most amazing of those images to me is the that deep field image, which was the very first one that mm-hmm. was announced. Right. And where, you know, at first glance, if you look at a low-resolution image of that picture, what you see are little dots and they and, or little blobs. And you might think, oh, those are just stars or whatever. But they're actually galaxies. And, you know, by comparison, you know, our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, which you can see on a dark night, and usually in the summertime, mm-hmm. um, they estimate that it has 
at least 100 billion, with a B, stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. Actually, somewhere between like maybe 100 billion and maybe as many as 300 billion stars. And so in that one image alone are like 5,000 different galaxies. And our galaxy is like an average size. Anyway, it's amazing. And right on to Greg Robinson. That's right. Who's the program director for the James Webb Space Telescope. He's a NASA engineer. And, you know, he actually was recently profiled in the Wall Street Journal talking about how he helped turn that program around. Because initially it was a debacle. It was behind schedule. They're having all kinds of engineering challenges, all kinds of things. And, you know, just right on to him and to the whole team at NASA. You can find out more at nasa.gov with regards to the James Webb's Space Telescope, I highly recommend that you download the images at full resolution Mm -hmm. and zoom in. Mm -hmm. Where you think is a star, it's going to be a galaxy. The size of the universe is amazing. Absolutely amazing. It is. So, if you're not a person of African descent, why should you subscribe to this podcast? Because it affects all of us. That's right. You know, know, for example, I'm just now talking about um, Greg Robinson. And, you know highlighting him first of all his leadership was like just an amazing thing unto itself Mm -hmm. so i mean it's a good profile in leadership profile in vibranium and yet you know it's also an example that runs counter to the narrative that you hear in popular media and why would you care about that um i mean if you're part of the the african diaspora if you're part of the black community here in america you know you're like right on also comes as no surprise but yes right on but even if you're not, why that's relevant is that if that's able to inspire anyone, mm-hmm. whether you're black or whatever, yes. it's an inspiring story. Mm-hmm. And if it helps lift up a community that has been historically marginalized and told, well, you need to really just be playing basketball. You need to stick to this. You know, you need to, quote, stay in your lane. Shout out to Miles Worthington talking about, like, no, there is no such thing as a lane. But by seeing profiles that are, quote, atypical, unquote. Profiles in vibranium. Hashtag hidden figures. So it's actually not so atypical at all. But by having these stories come up, it helps uplift all of us. Mm -hmm. Because if, for example, if you smashed your pinky finger and you crushed it, you know, under a, a, you're hammering a nail or something, you smash your pinky finger. Suddenly your whole hand becomes challenged. You can't, even though you don't always use your pinky finger for a whole lot of things. And I would dare say that, you know, for those of you who are listening, kind of like, are you saying that black population is your pinky finger? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm simply saying that even if you had the mindset of thinking, hey, that's them, they're not important, they're not really, you know, part of us. Mm-hmm. But it's like then, I mean, if you were thinking, if you put, you know, certain communities as being kind of like the pinky finger, this vestigial part of, the, of, of your experience, well, try smashing your pinky finger with a hammer and see how well the rest of your hand works. And so, you know, why all of this is relevant, why we are striving so much to uplift everyone in the black diaspora is not so much because we're anti-anybody. We're just trying to do our part. That's a long way of saying that's why you care. All in it together. And in that spirit, we join the citizens of Japan 
and men and women of goodwill everywhere in mourning the tragic loss of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Yeah. We also continue to pray for the ethnic violence in Ethiopia, for Ukraine, for Mali, for Syria, and for wherever there's pain and suffering and injustice and hopelessness. So today, you're going to hear our conversation with Lavanya Jones, yeah. who's the founder of Consciously Funded and the new director of the Georgia Social Impact Collaborative. With any venture that you want to launch, you have to know the market that you're going into, right? You have to understand your customers. You have to understand who your competitors are, what type of market share that you can gain. And so our map is really like that single place that people can go to find out, okay, if I want to tack, tackle hunger, who's doing that? What? Who's funding that? <laughs> Are there accelerators or programs that I can go through to build and scale my idea? So it's really that one place that um, anyone can go to um, as an entrepreneur, someone who wants to start a venture in social impact, to see where they need to get started, to do some research on their market and the area they want to grow their business in. But we also really position it as a place where those who have money that they want to mobilize towards social impact, they can go and see who they can fund. We're also going to talk about the new black banking app, Kinley. We're going to discuss LA Tech Week and other great tech events on our calendar. We're going to talk about the 2022 African Youth Survey. We're going to respond to a new ranking that identifies Lagos, Nigeria as the second worst livable city in the world. And because of our discussion with Lavanya Jones that was about impact investing, we're going to talk about the impact investing and social outcomes we think will bring us closer to Wakanda. That's right. So let's march. Sandra Douglas Morgan is the first black female president of an NFL American football team, the Las Vegas Raiders. On a similar note, Mike Greer has been named the San Jose Sharks' new general manager, becoming the first black general manager ever in the National Hockey League. The African Leadership Group has acquired the coding school, Colburton, which they will fold into their online learning platform, ALXAfrica.com. The Kazana Group in Ethiopia has established a partnership with the Strathmore Business School in Kenya Mm -hmm. to equip a new generation of East African business leaders. Conscious Venture Partners has raised $15.8 million for its second Conscious Venture Fund, which will be part of a $50 million fund to invest in minority and female entrepreneurs that are, quote, ignored for all the wrong reasons. The female-focused venture effort all Rays has opened a new chapter in the United States in Washington, D.C. The Central African Republic is launching Africa's first zero-tax crypto hub built on its new Sango crypto coin. Sango, S-A-N-G-O is the Sango crypto coin. We'll talk more about that at some point. And finally, in more sporting news, the Confederation of African Football has announced their plan to launch the African Super League in 2023 in Tanzania. Mika Shavala, stand up. Swahili Nation, stand up. Miriam Malakiash, stand up. And that's soccer for all of us rubes. <laughs> that is right. That is right. I'm, I'm going to make a little announcement, and, and, and I'll let you listeners hold me to it. I've just been um, volunteered 
to be a ref for my son's soccer team. That's right. And who doesn't know the rules of soccer? Because to me, football, you know, is something you watch on Sundays and, you know, it's not quite soccer. So I get to learn. So I'm going to, I'm excited about watching this and learning a little bit more and, and seeing how professionals do it. So that way I can be a, a better ref or at least a not terrible ref for my son's uh, soccer team. Yellow cards and red cards <laughs> will abound. So we have some feedback and updates. Yeah. So Mika Shavala is a hit. Folks found him very inspiring. He inspires uh, me. So if you haven't heard our episode with him, I really don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're thinking because... Because you're listening to this episode. But after that, you can then go back. Mm-hmm, because what we talked about, the movement toward one culturally united global Pan-African community is at the heart of this platform. So big ups to Mika. We will have him back and we will continue to keep you updated on what he's doing. And if you haven't supported his GoFundMe campaign for Swahili Nation's new offices, please, please do so. So more Benin bronzes are coming home. Right on. We mentioned already that the Smithsonian was returning some of, quote unquote, their collection. And France has recently returned 26 items, including statues, thrones and palace doors. And there's even an exhibition taking place as we speak in Cotonou in Benin at the Presidential Palace. But now, finally, Germany is doing the same. Right on. So, first off, thanks to the Griot for reporting this story. And this is what the German Foreign Minister, Annalena Baerbach, had to say. Quote, This is just the beginning of more than 1,000 pieces from the Kingdom of Benin that are still in German museums all belong to the people of Nigeria. It was wrong to take the bronzes. It was wrong to keep them for 120 years. The bronzes are some of Africa's greatest treasures, but they also tell the story of colonial violence. And the Griot article goes on to say that the Nigerian government described it as, quote, the single largest repatriation of artifacts anywhere in the world. So big ups to Germany for doing what's right. One of the interesting things, dear listener, is that if you're thinking that, like, oh, this is like just something that's happening in Africa, and you know, and, and that we're there, they go complaining again. Right, right, right. You no, know, before you think about that, and, and and sort of like, oh, that's just happening over there, and it's like a new thing. Go talk to the Greeks. They've been campaigning for over a hundred years to get back some of the sculptures that are sitting in the British Museum, the Elgin marbles. Um, the so-called Elgin Marbles. The Elgin Baylors? <laughs> no, no, the Elgin Marbles. I think they were the Elgin Baylors. These are the statues that were on the Parthenon in Greece that were taken in like 1830 or something. Um, I think they're in the Fabulous Forum is where those things are located right now. <laughs> but but the Elgin Marbles were um, taken when the British were fighting or made some sort of treaty with the Ottoman Empire and were taken off the Parthenon. <laughs> I mean, just... just Carted up and taken by Lord Elgin. And the Greeks have been trying to get these back. And interestingly enough, they're now making digital replicas. And they're trying to have the idea of like, well, maybe we'll send you back a replica. And the Greeks are like, no, you send us back the originals and you can have your replicas. So on one hand, it's very interesting that they're using uh, very high resolution digital scans to make those replicas. That's a whole different conversation and a whole different story. Shout out to Ludi.com. <laughs> yeah. But 
it's not just uniquely an African thing. And so why does it matter is that everyone deserves their culture. And whether you're Greek, whether you're Nigerian, whether you are in descendant from the Incas, you deserve your culture and it's best seen in situ. And actually, you know, as Providence would have it, I saw a speech made by our wonderful sister Chimamanda Adichie, mm-hmm. who was an author and activist and vibranium infused queen. She was actually in Germany some time ago at the Humboldt Forum, mm-hmm. and she spoke about this very issue. To me, it was an absolutely pitch perfect declaration. I beg every single listener to watch that speech. It's about 20 minutes long, which seems like an eternity in our attention-lacking society. But trust me, it is worth every second. It is worth every second. Listen to it. Yeah. Um, So I will also send out a tweet about it. So if you're not following us on social media, please, please do so. You can find us on Twitter at sky is underscore b to the l to the c to the k same thing on instagram on facebook you can find us at sky is b to the l to the c to the k so no underscore and on the web we actually bought a vowel so it's sky is black dot kizom and one last thing too really quickly is that a listener gave you some love for having the courage to talk about mental health so big ups to you for being strong enough to be vulnerable. Well, thank you. You know, um, mental health, I actually just think is health. And I will double check on this, but I think there's a new emergency line for mental health issues. I think it's, I want to say it's 988. Yeah, that's the suicide and crisis lifeline put on by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration here in the United States as part of the U.S. Department of Health. Amen. Now, on the topic of true strength and power, yeah, what did you think about the new movie from Viola Davis, The Woman King? That is going to be amazing. That is the story of an, a real-life uh, Dora Milaje. Those are the female warriors you saw in the movie Black Panther. Wakanda forever. But this is real. That's this right. is real. The, mm-hmm. the King's Guard, women soldiers who were fighting off colonizers. I mean, that they actually did that. And so this is the story of that. Viola Davis looks just amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to piss her off. Uh, but, I mean, wow, what a great trailer that I saw. And the movie's coming out soon, so I'm looking forward to uh, putting that in queue to watch. And so I'm glad to hear you say that you'll be checking it out and that you liked it because it is time for us to Uh-oh. play... What would Anton do and what would Anton say? So, the toy manufacturer, Hasbro, has announced that you can now make your own action figure with a 3D printed image, which means that the upcoming Sky is Black merch store is really (laughs) about to be future-facing. So, the Hasbro Selfie Series allows people to purchase action figures in their own likeness from franchises like Ghostbusters, G.I. Joe, Power Rangers, Star Wars, and Marvel. And to me, this is going to be huge. And so, if you were to make your own figurine, what would Anton say is the Anton figurine's superpower? 
So, like a figurine of me? Yes. Nobody wants that. <laughs> we want that. No, nobody wants that. I we mean, want that. I mean, I'm, on one hand, I could finally get the abs of my dreams because, like, you know, when you have those superhero figures, they all have like, like crazy. I mean, just in the same way that that Barbie dolls are disproportionately, you know, the, the body proportions for the, uh, of a woman. I mean, you wouldn't mm-hmm. like like her legs would snap or something ridiculous, right. you know. But for like male action, you know, action figures, you've got like a chest that's like ninety inches wide, like 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 this Hulk thing. So it would be kind of. <laughs> With your face on it, I can't wait to see it. What would be that superpower? <laughs> well, given that people tease me for having a lot of words, it would be um, I could just sort of talk you to death. <laughs> it's like, really? You want to come at me with a with a titanium, you know, tipped spear? Let me tell you about the molecular structure of titanium and blah 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 blah. And like the the villain would be like so bored by me expounding upon like you know the metallurgical qualities of titanium and why it's actually a fragile metal and not really good for these kinds of things um in terms of holding a, a sharp edge <laughs> you know <laughs> it would be something like that where the, the villain would be like okay this is like this guy is woo. dr reason <laughs> a little too much and and they'd be like, okay, you're just, you're no threat to us. And they would move on. Or they would say, gosh, is everyone like this? Yeah, okay, well, we'll just do, that would somehow thwart them would be, um, I would just sort of talk them, talk them to death. Dr. Reason, love it. <laughs> and so what would Anton say that the Anton figurine would say to those who play with them? And what I mean is, would it say something like, may the force be with you or, I'll be back, or hasta la vista, baby. Like or if, like if you pull a string, it would say something. Yes, or yippee kaye, mother sucker, or <laughs> not today, colonizer. What would the Anton figurine actually say? And see, there I am dating myself because you know now action figures are all like digital, you know, to be a battery or something, you know, versus like pulling a string and having it say something. Um, but. Um, <laughs> I guess if I'm if I'm going to be consistent, it would be like you know you'd you'd press the button or whatever, and it would say, "Read a book, kid." <laughs> well, here is what I would like your figurine to say. I would want your figurine to say, "Say what again? Say what again?" But since it's all digital, like you press the button and it would say that, and then it would say, you know, read a book, and it would say, you know, Kujichagalia. That's right. Um, it would say something like that. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this question, so it's always a pop quiz with you, but that was definitely unexpected. So I look forward to seeing the 3D printed action figure of you. No, 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 no. Thankfully, my wife is accepting of my figure, and that's about it. We love you, period, end of story. (laughs) So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to look at why The Economist thinks that Lagos is such a terrible place to live. We're going to look at the new black-owned banking app called Kinley, and we're going to look at a few great events coming up, like the Ubuntu Arts Festival. Yeah. And we will do all that when we come back. Sky is black. Sky is Lagos. Sky is like an action figure with a kung fu grip. That's right. (laughs) Sky is kung fu grip. Sky is 3D printed. Sky is, sky is, 
Chimamanda. Heads up, everybody. I'm B. Francis Clark. And I'm Anton Anderson. And we have some exciting news. Yeah, we're halfway through our year of Ujamaa. Halfway through. And, boy, has it been a journey. It's been a real journey for us to take this whole idea of redirecting our everyday consumer buying power and aim it towards black and black-owned businesses. A taftastic journey. (laughs) Check us out our episodes. You'll learn more about what we mean by that. Because the idea is that Ujamaa, you know, of course, means cooperative economics. And the idea has been to take, you know, whatever small percentage is, at least in our households, has been of our everyday buying. going 110, baby. 110. Yeah, and aiming towards 110, exactly. 110%. (laughs) But even taking, like, whatever the percentage is, let's say it's like 2 or 3%, and just doubling that would make a huge impact on these businesses because they're small businesses. And so our idea, and when you listen to our episodes, is to... Try to find ways, everyday ways, to not just have a one-off sale and be a sale, but to be an ongoing, recurring customer. Quite frankly, it hasn't been easy, so go listen to our episodes and follow us as we go on that path to making Ujamaa happen every single day. The journey to 110. (laughs) Join us, Gear of Ujamaa. Ujamaa math, baby. (laughs) Welcome back to Sky is Black. We want to send love to the Black Parade Museum in New Orleans, which is reopening. We also want to salute the city of Hawassa, which, of course, is in Ethiopia, and just experienced a car-free day Mm -hmm. so that children and families could bike and roller skate and skateboard and hoverboard all through the city center. Nice. So before we discuss why Lagos, Nigeria, has been labeled the second least livable city in the world... How you doing? You know, I'm I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, it's 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 summertime, so it's always uh, fun and a little bit different pace of things. And one of the nice things about that is it's given me a chance, which is odd because as a father of two small children, there's not a lot of me time, but me that, time or free time. But I actually am starting to sneak in a little bit of of pleasure reading. Um, and when I'm not reading wonderful, uh, sensile graphic novels, sensile, I'm my current book is a book by Dennis Kimbrough called "The Wealth Choice," uh, which talks about the success secrets of black millionaires. Um, if you, if the name of the author Dennis Kimbrough sounds a little familiar, he was the one who did uh, the uh, black version of "Think and Grow Rich" by Napoleon Hill, mm-hmm. um, entitled "Think and Grow Rich." A black choice, and um, so far I've I've had a chance to kind of go like a really fast pass through this book, uh, and now I'm sort of circling back, and especially books I think where I can really gain some knowledge from, as opposed to just sort of like just being entertained. I generally will, will do like two or three iterative loops around the book, and so I've done my first loop, and it was really fascinating. And so it'll be a topic. For some other time, uh, but once again, uh, the wealth choice: success secrets of black millionaires. This is my current book. Love it. So, we'll do money moves in just a second, right? Because we have to talk about our Wakanda suburb, Lagos. Yeah. So the Economist puts out this annual index in 
And to me, actually, what's arguably worse than Lagos being the second worst livable city is that five of the 10 least livable cities were in Africa. Douala in Cameroon, Harare in Zimbabwe, Algiers in Algeria, Tripoli in Libya, and the second worst city of all, Lagos. So here's how the index works. Quote, Every city is assigned a rating for relative comfort for over 30 qualitative and quantitative factors across five broad categories. Stability, healthcare, culture and environment, education, and infrastructure. Again, stability, healthcare, culture and environment, education, and infrastructure. Each factor in a city is rated as acceptable, tolerable, uncomfortable, undesirable, or intolerable. For qualitative indicators, a rating is awarded based on the judgment of our team of expert analysts and in-city contributors, whatever. For quantitative indicators, a rating is calculated based on the relative performance of a number of external data points. The scores are then compiled and weighed to provide a score in the range of 1 to 100, where 1 is considered intolerable and 100 is considered ideal. So the livability rating is provided both as an overall score and as a score for each category. So what were the top 10 cities? Number one city worldwide was Vienna, Austria. Vienna, stand up. After that, it's Copenhagen. At 98 with a 98 index score. Zurich. Mm-hmm. Calgary. Mm-hmm. And just as a spoiler alert, Americans. Well, we didn't break the top 10. No, we did not. <laughs> so, you know, we're number something, mm-hmm. but didn't break the top 10. No. Um, so the, the, the top-ranked ones are Vienna, Copenhagen, Zurich, Calgary, Vancouver, Geneva, Frankfurt, Toronto, Amsterdam, Osaka, and then Melbourne, rounding out the top 10. And so Canada, three cities in the top 10, and Switzerland with two. Yeah. Canada, stand up. Seriously. And so turning to the bottom 10 and their score, so the bottom 10 cities were Tehran, Douala, Harare, Dhaka, D-H-A-K-A, which is in Bangladesh, Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea, Karachi in Pakistan, Algiers in Algeria, Tripoli in Libya, Lagos in Nigeria, and the lowest score of all, Damascus in Syria. So the index score for Lagos was 32 as compared to Vienna, which came in at a strong 99. You might hear all this and you might be like, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do I, why should I care? Mm-hmm. But at like, Lagos has something like 15.4 million people. And so that's almost twice New York City. And so why would you care? I mean, just from a pure human level. Yes. For 15 million people. For 15 million people. 15 million humans. And then given that I, I believe the majority of the population, there are young people, mm-hmm. you know, looking ahead to the future as we look forward and, and look to move ahead, you want everyone, especially younger people who are getting underway with their lives and getting started, you know, you want them to have a good life. And so, generally, historically speaking, when the youth of a given area are underemployed and not essentially 
have nothing to lose. Tick, tick, boom. You set yourself up for having problems either regionally and in many cases, you know, those things can spill over worldwide. And so that's why you care. You know, you've got double New York being one of the worst places to live and the majority of the population being young. The average score that Lagos got was 32.2. For stability, they got a 20. For healthcare, they got a 20. For culture and environment, they got 44.9. Education, 25. And for infrastructure, which gives me some hope, 46.4. So Out of 100 is the score. Out of, out of 100, yeah. So Altogether, that comes out to 32.2, second worst livable city in the world. Again, according to The Economist. So my question to you is, yes. what do we do? Burn it all down. <laughs> no. <laughs> so what we do is we look at the data. We take a hard look at ourselves. We say, where are we? Who are we? Where do we want to go? And how are we going to get there? Some may see nothing but gloom and doom in these numbers, but I do not. We understand the sort of colonial legacy. We understand where Nigeria and Lagos is in terms of its own development. And to me, there are many reasons for optimism. And one of them, in my estimation, is a real estate developer by the name of Sijibomi Ogundele. Brother, I apologize if I am butchering your name. Many people know me as the name butcherer, and you may be experiencing why at this very moment. But <laughs> his name is Sijibomi Ogundele, and he is the CEO of a real estate development company called Sujimoto, S-U-J-I-M-O-T-O, which is a luxury real estate company in Lagos. And just as an aside, if I could be anyone in the world, I would not be the president of the United States. Well, maybe I might be the president of the United States. It's a tough job. It is a tough job. I would also not be the NFL commissioner. I would actually be somebody like Brother Ogundele, uh, because what he is doing is not just building personal wealth or generational wealth. He, to me, is creating a generational gift, a generational imprint, a generational legacy by building quality homes for the people in Lagos. I am so inspired by him. And part of the whole thing is really creating an opportunity for housing mm -hmm. to be really, for everyone to have high quality housing mm -hmm. is kind of what they're all about. One of the interesting things is that if you look at their designs, they're world-class designs. And, Vibranium and, infused. And it's one of those things to where if, if you didn't know, you would see these designs, you'd see the, you know, the renderings of these projects, and you'd say, oh, that's going to be in Miami coming soon. Or, exactly. or I think I saw that in Miami. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, at least that's what sort of jumps out to me a little bit. And to me, he actually deserves an action figure. We talked about your action <laughs> no, figure a minute no ago. No one wants my action figure, definitely. Well, we, de we definitely want your action figure, <laughs> and we want Brother Ogundele's action figure as well. So if anyone ever makes one, please send me one. Yeah, seriously. Uh, that brother is one of my heroes. And he even says that he enjoys creating, you know, unique and incredible experiences that people will never forget. And, 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 and he is aiming to break the glass ceiling, you know, mm -hmm. in every project that, that he does. And yes, you can find out more about 
him at sujimotoig.com. That's S-U-J-I-M-O-T-O-N-I-G.com. So we also want to put this conversation in larger context. Mm-hmm. So the 2022 UN World Cities Report has been issued. And here are some key takeaways. Quoting here, the report reaffirms that the vision for the future of cities must embody the new social contract in the form of universal basic income, universal health coverage, and universal housing and basic services. And it also unfortunately says that most countries in sub-Saharan Africa are off track from ending poverty by 2030. The region has the highest incidence of urban poverty globally, with about 23% of the urban population living below the international poverty line, and 29% are experiencing multidimensional poverty. And the rate of multidimensional urban poverty in sub-Saharan Africa is 11 times higher than in Latin America and the Caribbean. And they also say that unless governments at all levels act decisively, poverty could become an entrenched feature of the future of cities in the region. And so they also say that the fight against poverty is part of the unfinished business of the global development agenda. Current projections suggest that the number of people living in extreme poverty will remain above 600 million in 2030, resulting in a global poverty rate of 7.4%. Multidimensional poverty in developing countries remains high. Research conducted in 107 developing countries revealed that 1.3 billion people, or 22% of the population, are multidimensionally poor. Current estimates suggest that 84.3% of the multidimensionally poor live in Sub-Saharan Africa, 556 million, Southern Asia, 532 million, 67% are in middle-income countries, and about 200 million of the 1.3 billion multidimensionally poor people reside in urban areas. So again, to make it plain, Tripoli, Harare, Lagos, Wakanda urban suburbs have some work to do. And so what does that look like? It looks like really essentially remaking the social contract and making a new vision for cities. And the UN, in their document, you know, they make a case for things like universal basic income Mm -hmm. and we've touched on that before on other episodes they make a case for universal health coverage Mm -hmm. which most sadly not all Mm -hmm. which most you know what you would call first tier nations do quote unquote industrialized nations right not all (laughs) not all um they also make the case for universal housing and they talk at length about pathways to a a sustainable urban future Mm -hmm. because if you don't make it sustainable then you're going to continue to have this rise and fall and rise and fall because Lagos wasn't always this way no it was not and so you know it's one of those things where it would rise and fall and so you want to do it in a way that from a policy standpoint is sustainable and obviously having those policies instantiate into action 
And they're also pushing for what they call the 15-minute city concept, which is a model for creating walkable, mixed-use, and compact neighborhoods. As they say, as a new planning approach, the 15-minute city can guide the development of neighborhoods where residents can meet most of their daily needs within a 15-minute travel time on foot, cycle, micromobility, or public transport. Because that's a nice place to live. So that's what the UN believes needs to happen. But what about the young people who will actually inherit and inhabit the future? So the Ichikowitz Family Foundation has just published their second African youth survey. And if there's anything we want to do is we want to hear and validate the voices of our young people. We want to empower them to walk into Wakanda. So according to this report, the number one concern is high-paying jobs. Right. Although in Ethiopia, Gabon, and Sudan, they have a slightly different perspective. Ethiopian youth want the continent to prioritize modernizing the education system, as do Sudanese youth and Gabonese youth think that the continent's priority should be granting more personal freedoms to citizens. Right. And that just goes, that just simply speaks to the youth, in quotes, not the, being a mon- monolith. The youthuses, as we like to say. So African youth also believe in universal access to the internet. And 70% consider Wi-Fi access to be a fundamental human right. 64% of the continent's youth have access to regular private internet access outside of their workplace. But one-third still say that they do not have regular private internet connections. So in Rwanda... in Ethiopia, 52%, and in Congo, 49% lack access to private internet. So a lot of other very, very interesting takeaways from this African youth survey. They also talk about how African youth are gaining their news, which is important. Unlike many folks in the U.S., most African youth are very skeptical of Facebook, which gives me tremendous joy. Because as a news source, it is... Well, 21% said that, you know, they think that the world would be a better off place without social media. And a case could be made. And one interesting takeaway for me, especially in light of our conversation with Mika Shavala, they also asked in the survey about the idea of African unity. And there is a Rwandan fashion designer who had this to say, quote, We see our well-being in a collective sense the success of one depending on others. And this makes our societies interlinked, perhaps like no other place on earth. He goes on to say, in my fashion design work, I strive to showcase the commonality that makes us all Africans. When I'm designing my fabrics, I use different elements from different African countries. I look into the different cultures, the tribal ways of styling and dressing, I interweave materials many would think would clash, however, are inspired by myriad African designs as a way of showing togetherness and harmony, combining different colors, symbols, and fabrics informed by all parts of Africa. Right on. Right on and amen. Ultimately, it's going to be that spirit of unity and collaboration and cooperation that is going to get us over the hump and in to the welcoming plains of Wakanda. So we hope that 
that Lagos and Algiers and Tripoli and Douala and Harare can all meet the needs of its residents and increase their standing in the world. And we believe that they will. Yep. And just so everybody knows, we're going to have lots of conversations with architects and designers and engineers coming up. So we will continue to reference these reports and more going forward. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to look at some events. We're going to mention a few books. And we'll talk about the social impact that we think will bring us closer to Wakanda. And you're also going to hear our fabulous conversation with Coach Lavanya Jones. Right on. Sky is... Livable cities. Sky is... Sky is black. Sky is Sujimoto. The first annual Pan-African Food Festival will arrive in the summer of 2022 and for the first time ever. Diners will enjoy a true Pan-African table with food and wine from places like Ethiopia, Jamaica, Morocco, New Orleans, Nigeria, Atlanta, Belize, New York, South Africa, Cuba, Brazil, Haiti, Kenya, Barbados, London, Egypt, Ghana, Senegal, and Puerto Rico. Every premier chef of African descent, along with restaurant owners, authors, bartenders, food critics, even YouTube stars, will be invited to participate in the tastiest, spiciest, most down-home and delicious food festival there has ever been. Sure, you've probably had soul food, but you've never, ever been to this flavor town. So join me as we organize step-by-step, chef-by-chef, a dinner party over a thousand years in the making. Sound like a good time? Somebody say the blessing. Welcome back to Sky is Black. The 34th annual Southern Book Festival is coming to Nashville from October 14th through the 16th at War Memorial Plaza. You can check out the show notes for more details. We also have some new titles in our bookshop. The first is a children's book called Dream Builder, the story of architect Philip Freelon. We also have the new book from Nigerian writer Bolu Babalola, Honey and Spice. You can also find the new book from Adam Grant. It's called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And lastly, a book that was recommended to us by Brandon Brooks of Overlooked Ventures. It's called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. So you can check out those titles in the Sky's Black bookshop. We also want to give folks a heads up about a book that we will definitely be talking about more deeply in the future. And that is a new work from Nicole Joseph. It's called Making Black Girls Count in Math Education a black feminist vision for transformative teaching. So that book is not out yet, but when it drops, we will definitely be talking about it. That's right. So let's look at our calendar here. So we are all familiar with ENKOPA, E-N-K-O-P-A, which is the movement of Ethiopian entrepreneurs and innovators. The National Jobs and ENKOPA Summit, It's taking place July 22nd to the 23rd at the Sheraton Addis Hotel. Get your tickets while they are hot. Mm -hmm. There's also something called I Dream a World that is coming up as well. You know, that's actually a really fantastic thing. It's at the Portrait Gallery in Washington, Mm D.C. And first of all, the Portrait Gallery is just amazing just unto itself. But beyond that, I Dream a World is featuring the portraits 
from photographer Brian Lenker. Mm-hmm. And this show runs from July 8th, so it's already underway, through January 29th of, of next year. And Brian Lenker, he wrote a book that came out in the 90s uh, called I Dream a World, Portraits of Black Women Who Changed America. Mm-hmm. And these have these incredible, like, iconic portraits of people like Lena Horne and mm-hmm. Rosa Parks and Sarah Vaughn and Shirley Chisholm and Leah Chase and, uh, and Coretta Scott King, among others. And so this exhibition actually comes in two parts. And so this is part one, and then part th- two will be February of twenty three of 2023 through September of 2023. But go check it out. Uh, you can find out more about that um, at the National Portrait Gallery's website, which is npg.si. SmithsonianInstitute.edu. And like you mentioned, the book came out in the 90s. I actually got it from my mother. Nice. I'm not sure if it was Mother's Day or her birthday or something. And it is sitting on her coffee table as we speak. The Black Women in Data Summit is coming up October 1st through the 2nd later on this year. Check out skiesblack.com for more details about that. There's also a class for black women in artificial intelligence that is coming up in just a couple of days again check skiesblack.com for more information about that and the ubuntu arts festival in kigali is also it's happening right now it's happening as we speak yeah, it's happening it is right going now. down and i thought i thought i felt a tickling in my soul right there <laughs> i knew there was something and that festival's been actually been going on since uh 2015 so it's an annual festival um like many they took a pause for for covid uh, and they were mostly, they are all digital, but they're back in person there in Kigali. And really a fantastic international collaboration, not only with artists and musicians in Rwanda, but including Germany, uh, the U.S., Brazil, Turkey, Egypt. I mean, just really uh, fantastic. Kigali, stand up. Yes. The Kigali, theme, stand up. Yes. The theme this year is go forth. And so uh, looking forward to catching some highlights from that festival. Amen. LA Tech Week in Los Angeles in the United States is coming up August 15th to the 21st. Also in LA, if you want like a choose-your-own-adventure type thing. Oh, we do. It's called the Road to Wakanda. We've talked frequently about the prosperity market Mm -hmm. uh, as a a pop-up of uh, a pop-up farmer's market, both online and in person uh, for black-owned businesses. And they're having their second annual L.A. Black Business Scavenger Hunt. And you can find out more about that at ProsperityMarketLA.com. And who knows, you might even see some Sky is Black hosts at an upcoming Prosperity Market event. We shall see. We shall see. We shall see. But it's happening in August. so, So check out their website and sign up for the scavenger hunt and support your local black businesses. And there's something really cool going down in Silicon Valley for HBCU students. Yeah, they're having an evening of drinks and kind of like a networking thing. Uh, Really a chance for HBCU students and alumni in the Bay Area to network with the VC community in Silicon Valley. And we've talked about that before, about how such a very, very small slice of the VC community is represented by members of the Black Diaspora. And so this is a chance. You have to be an HBCU student or a recent alumni, or uh, a member of one of the various fellowship programs that are happening there. You can find out more about that at lu.ma slash hbcu 
VC Silicon Valley. We'll have a link. Morehouse, stand up. Spellman, stand up. Howard, Hampton, Tuskegee, Fisk, stand up. Yeah, and registration will end on that pretty soon, so check it out. Awesome. And the last thing I want to mention is that the Addis Build Conference and Expo is coming up next year, May 18th to the 20th. And I am putting this on my calendar because I absolutely positively intend to be there. Again, May 18th to the 20th next year. Right on. So you're about to hear our discussion with Lavanya Jones, who is the mm-hmm. new director of the Georgia Social Impact Collaborative. That's coming up in just a second. And one of the things you'll hear Coach Lavanya say is that there's no economic justice without racial justice and vice versa. So the mission of the Georgia Social Impact Collaborative is connecting capital with social outcomes. And so there are a lot of social outcomes that you and I would like to see. We would like to see less incarceration, more black-owned businesses, less police misconduct and brutality, more venture capital dollars, less discrimination, more liberation and freedom, less sexism, more justice, on and on and on. So why don't you go first... What is a social reality or a social outcome that you think will move us closer to Wakanda? We talked about about this a little bit at the top of the show, and you've heard me speak about this before. But to me, part of what it looks like when you know this concept of Wakanda becomes reality and, and instantiates in our world is one where. The larger Pan-African culture, black culture, is considered by everyone as co-equal. You know, when you think about different Asian uh, mm-hmm. ethnic cultures, mm-hmm. you know, everyone, no, no one looks down their nose at, you know, the art and culture of Japan, let's say. That's right. Uh, no one looks down their nose at the art and culture in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, how we know we've gotten there is when, you know, you say you're going to the Louvre, but then instead you're going to, and this is what I think would be a, a positive social impact, mm-hmm. when you're going to the the equivalent of the Louvre in maybe in Addis Ababa, maybe in Lagos, wherever it happens to be, um, you know, and you go there and you're like, and people would tell you, you, know, you come back, for, it's summertime, you come back from your summer vacation, where'd you go? I went to the, to the Wakanda Museum in Lagos. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, wow, I've always wanted to go there. That's right. You know, and, 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 and how was that? It's like, well, here's a selfie of me in front of the, you know, in front of the obelisk there. Mm-hmm. Much like my wife and I on our honeymoon took a selfie of us in front of the Louvre. Co-equal. And so it's a small thing. Quite frankly, it's a small thing. But to me, it's a bellwether of having us being co-equal as well as having a place to just be. So you're looking to have sort of a pan-African museum? Yeah, essentially. I mean, if you had to distill it down to like just a, a brief description, yes. Mm-hmm. I love it. All right, so for me, it's probably no surprise that I am passionate about architecture, construction, and literal community building. One of the reasons why I love the African Futures Institute. Leslie Loco, stand up. And so we mentioned earlier in the show the African Youth Survey, which is what African youth want for their future. But what I would like to see is the opportunity for all of them to live in homes and communities that they 
love right um, vibranium infused homes there is a huge need for quality affordable homes all across the continent and that to me needs to be addressed in our generation and i agree i I mean everyone needs a clean safe sustainable place to live and so the social outcome that i would like to see on the road to that is for african nations to have the tools to build what they need to build on their own Addis Ababa just as an example they're building all kinds of things but the question who is actually building these major developments it's mainly China for example the Bank of Abyssinia is financing and enabling the second tallest building in Africa but it's actually a Chinese company building it and to me in my lowly humble opinion This should be the last time this ever occurs. And let me be clear, though. I am not saying that Chinese companies should never build in Ethiopia or stop building things in Ethiopia. I'm saying that Chinese companies can't be the only companies that can construct Africa's most ambitious architecture projects. So you're really talking about like the the African version of like Bechtel or something? Yes. Okay. Essentially. I get it. But I mean, but no, I get that. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because when you are, when you have the capability of doing large projects, when you can build your own infrastructure, one, it'll reflect your own aesthetic, your own values. And more importantly, because as uh, Lavanya will say in just a moment, you know, economic justice and racial justice are both sort of tied together. That's right. By building the infrastructure yourself, the profits of that don't go to Bechtel or that Chinese construction company, but those profits and that economic power stays on the continent. So I call on the entire Ethiopian government. I call on the entire Ethiopian construction industry. I call on the Association of Ethiopian Architects. I call on every individual architect and architecture student to make whatever money moves and political moves are necessary to get past this situation. Addis Ababa cannot be Africa's cultural capital and not be able to do what any other European or Asian nation can do. And to me, here is what's wonderful. I am 100% certain, yay, even a thousand percent certain that Ethiopia will overcome this hurdle, do it quickly and not turn back. And that is why I mentioned that event that is coming up in Addis next May It is a major event for folks in the construction industry. And again, I totally intend to be there because I want to be part of the solution. So again, if I could do anything, if I could wave my hand, it would be the development of signature unique housing communities in Ethiopia and Nigeria and Ghana and Senegal and Kenya and across the continent. And by God's grace, that is what I will do in some small measure in partnership with the most talented and visionary and honorable and committed partners we can find. Right on. I have a fire in my heart and eager to let it burn. And so let's hear from Lavanya. Yeah, you guys are going to love this conversation. 
So Dr. Lavanya Jones is the director of the Georgia Social Impact Collaborative, and they are committed to developing a stronger ecosystem around impact investing in Georgia. By bringing together the region's leaders representing all sectors of the social fabric, they envision an energetic and dynamic network of resources that raise up our, the local impact ecosystem. And so, Dr. Lavanya, mm-hmm. you're going you're to love this conversation with her. She is just fantastic. Absolutely. Lavanya Jones, stand up. Lavanya Jones, stand up. Welcome, welcome. How you doing? I am doing wonderful. Very excited to be on this show with you all. Yeah, Thank we're you. so thankful to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so, so much for being here. So we will talk about your personal journey and impact investing in just a second, but I want to start off in a slightly different place. Okay. As you know, our podcast and our platform is really about one ongoing conversation, and that is how do we individually and collectively get ourselves to Wakanda? And of course, we use Wakanda as a metaphor for a real-world Pan-African promised land. But what's interesting to me is that you will hear many people say sincerely that Atlanta is the closest thing that we have to Wakanda That's on right. planet Earth. And so I'm just curious, what is going down in Atlanta? There's a lot going down in Atlanta. And for those of us who are natives, while we aspire to be Wakanda, we know we got a ways to go. (laughs) So it it really, for us, um, I have to take it all the way back to W.B. Du Bois when he was a professor at Atlanta University. It really started Mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. So during that time, he did research on, you know, how do you get black people after slavery to thrive, to build wealth? Um, and he ended up doing a paper that um, is, is readily available on black business and entrepreneurship. Um, and that philosophy, uh, then fast forward to Martin Luther King going to Morehouse and his breadbasket initiative um, and understanding the importance of economic uh, wealth and economic diversity um, and the fact that it has to be done collectively together. Uh, and then right. you fast forward to Maynard Jackson. And Manny Jackson took all those thoughts, who was also a Morehouse alum, and really laid out the blueprint for black business. Um, and as mayor of our city, uh, began to um, require um, a lot of the major institutions to have a certain percentage of contracts that they had to give to black contractors, uh, specifically with our airport, with Hartsville Jackson. Hartsville Jackson Airport and Arban Avenue specifically, which was the wealthiest black street in America in the 50s really built black wealth um, here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And so um, contracting, uh, getting, becoming a decision maker. I tell my students all the time, we have to have decision makers and we have to have people that are in place to be producers. So decision makers and producers. And that's what Maynard Jackson really built. Now, for the 96 Olympics, after that, we really have gotten away from his blueprint, um, as many leaders who are doing this work have stated in Atlanta, where now, uh, even though we have all these black people in corporate and entrepreneurship doing big things, raising money, raising funds, we have the largest racial wealth gap in the country. 
Really? We should not be. Yeah, we do. Huh. We do. I wasn't they expecting. Can, so, I wasn't expecting you to say that. <laughs> which is why I said we got a ways to go. It looks good. <laughs> it looks <laughs> like Wakanda, but when you pull back the curtain, the numbers and the data say it ain't so. So we, we still have um, a ways to go. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do, and uh, we are still in a position where a child in Atlanta born into poverty, um, there was a study done that said it would take that child 227 years to lift themselves up out of poverty, typically. Wow. So those that do are really the exception. I mean, even um, me and another friend of mine, Bame Joyner, who runs Atlanta, influences everything. We talk about this all the time. When you look at the people that are really in power outside of, um, you know, our mayor, but you look at the people that are executives at these large corporations, they are not from the Atlanta public school system. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, these corporations are coming here and they're bringing people here instead of hiring from here. Right. And so there's still a lot that we have to do. But the blueprint has been laid out for us. We just got to follow it. We got the boys, we got MLK, and we have Manny Jackson. So if we follow that blueprint, we will be all right. But we got to get back to following the blueprint. Do not forget, we yeah. got Coach Lavanya. <laughs> yes. So congratulations on your new position. So you're now the the director of the Georgia Social Impact Collaborative. And I know that the mission of the Georgia Social Impact Collaborative, developing a diverse, connected statewide ecosystem of stakeholders that are actively engaged in aligning capital with social outcomes. So before we get to the social outcomes that you want to see, can you define for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term impact investing? So the easiest way I can explain is that impact investing focuses on what we call the triple bottom line. So instead of it just being focused on a business making profit, you have a business that is focused on scaling and making impact and making and getting market share in the area of um, making sure people are thriving, making sure our planet is thriving, but then Mm -hmm. also making a profit. And we talk about you can do good and do well. So it's people, planet, and profit. And one of the greatest examples we have here in Atlanta of that um, is Jasmine Crow, who owns Gooder, which is a waste company that also Mm -hmm. tackles hunger and homelessness. And so she gets larger organizations to pay her (laughs) to take really good food that um, she can make meals for the homeless. She does pop-up grocery stores. And in return, she provides them data um, on their corporate social responsibility strategies, um, how how much they're making an impact with hunger and with homelessness. And so it's a win-win situation. And so those are the type of companies even, um, I also use the example of Tom Shoes. A lot of people know about Tom Shoes where mm-hmm. for every mm-hmm. shoe you purchase, they give a shoe to a right. child that doesn't have shoes. So it's that people planning and profit and that triple bottom line that impact investing really looks at. And then also compared to venture capital investing, the um, um, returns on impact investing, they're not necessarily looking for a 10x, um, but they may be looking for a 3x or a 5x because the focus is really on the impact that you're making in social outcomes. And one of the things that I am I'm making a priority to do is making sure that conversation is focused on the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals, mm-hmm. particularly in Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities because mm-hmm. we are impacted first and worst by, for those issues. So really looking at how do we align capital um, with people who are doing the work in those 17 sustainable development goals. 
we actually, I think you, you stole my thunder in terms of asking you to define <laughs> what, no, it's good. Perfect. In terms of what those social outcomes are, I don't have those 17 initiatives in front of me, but if you can give a high, give our listeners uh, a high level yeah. sense of what those are, uh, that would be great because that was really my next question was like to define uh, what sorts of, of social outcomes they are. And then I guess my part two was to ask, because the answer is the UN, but I was going to ask, you know, who defines what the social outcomes are and, and sort of who are the decision makers in that space? Sure, absolutely. So with the social outcomes, I don't have the 17 in front of me, but they essentially deal with uh, when you talk about people, we're mm-hmm. talking about gender equality, racial mm-hmm. equality. Um, we're also talking about uh, justice, such as police brutality and the uh, um, education to prison pipeline, those things that affect uh, people directly um, and how they're able to thrive and move up in society. Then you also have environmental matters, things like climate change, uh, life on water, life on land, uh, pollution, uh, infrastructure, you know, how we're building green cities, smart cities, sustainable cities. Uh, And then you also have the partnerships. How does private sector, public sector work together to then attack these goals? Uh, Mm -hmm. You have poverty, you have um, transportation, is also one of the goals. So looking at all those things that make a thriving society where people can live well and do well. And to be honest, one of the countries that is doing this really well is Singapore. Singapore is like years ahead of so many people when it comes to like tackling all these goals. Yeah, Singapore is really doing it. And then also um, on somewhat of a, a smaller scale, Uh, We have the sustainable city in Dubai, where they have literally built a sustainable city in the middle of the desert, um, where they're using solar power. They have their own um, urban farms in this city in the middle of the desert. And so, you know, there are a lot of these uh, communities popping up. Unfortunately, the United States as a whole, we're very behind when it comes to sustainable development goals. But these are goals that the United Nations um, got together and defined as 17 goals that will create a sustainable and prosperous society for all people. Um, and so it's, it's something that we all have to tackle and look at who is doing the work and funding the work in those 17 areas. And so even in my class, I make my students <laughs> pick a seven, one of the sustainable development goals and build a business solution around it. We don't do nonprofits, Amen. although nonprofits can be good, but studies have shown that business is one of the uh, best ways to accelerate progress in those 17 areas. Amen. You know, I actually had a chance to pull them up and they're, they're really fantastic. We'll have a, we'll have a link to them. And, yes. you know, it's interesting that you meet, that you, you talked about you know, implementing a business solution and because actually goal number 17 is talking about strengthening partnerships and, and talk about implementation of it all. Right. And, right. you know, these goals are fantastic and and yet you know they're there's a, I mean they cover the whole waterfront and so mm-hmm. I guess my question to you is that you know there in Atlanta you know where have you started and 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 can you t- highlight some of the successes that you're having uh, there locally sure so uh, for I can specifically speak for GSIC we started with our ecosystem map <laughs> mm-hmm. mapping yeah. out with our ecosystem map who 
is actually tackling social impact in Georgia. So the version that you see on the website right now is, is version 1.0, where we're just trying to figure out like who is doing social impact in Georgia. Uh, version 2.0, I really want to organize who's doing the work and funding the work around those 17 goals. Uh, some successes, again, Gooder is probably one of our best successes. G uh, right now it is July, 2022, and she just raised $8 million um, from in Series A funding for her business, but her nice. revenue is more than the money that she raised, and that's really the position you want to be in. Another uh, success here: we have a large urban, a couple urban farms here. We have Truly Living Well, um, and the other one it starts with an H, and I always butcher it. <laughs> so uh, you can look it up. It's an urban farm here in Atlanta, but they're doing really well around um, putting quality food and food deserts. We have a lot of food deserts here in Atlanta. Um, and so uh, they're doing really well and have been going around the country kind of spreading how urban farms can really tackle food insecurity. Um, and then another business we have here that I absolutely love is a business called Aquagenuity. Um, and all of these businesses that are naming, I'm naming are black owned. Uh, Aquagenuity has an app that can tell you the contaminants in your water based on your zip code. And so wow. the, it came about as, you know, we know uh, Flint and the issue that they've had with their water, mm -hmm. but there are over 2,000 other Flints in the United States, some of them with wor worse quality water than Flint. And Lord so she, uh, the lady, right, Dala Vaughn, who owns Aquagenuity, she has this app, you know, that can tell you the contaminants that are in your water. And then you can, you know, um, get filters or whatever you need to kind of clear those toxins. Um, and she just got a really big partnership, I believe, with Google. Um, and so we do have some successes here. I think overall, one of the other ecosystem builders here in Atlanta is Joey Womack of the Intentionally Good Project, where he has over three, a community of over 300 social impact businesses really around the country. It's not just focused on Atlanta. I mean, actually, now he's international. He has even international companies in his cohort where uh, they're doing weekly stand-ups to help each other build their social impact businesses based on the industry that they're in. And then he's also connecting them to funding where he has a partnership with Google for Startups where Google for Startups is providing funding for the companies that are ready to get their funding. And they're doing like 75 to $150,000 um, in startup funding for these businesses. Uh, and so those are just four examples of organizations we have here that are really tackling it and doing a great job. And with this map, you know, by my count, it was, I mean, it was nearly 200, um, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, institutions and organizations and companies that were that are part of that. You know, I know, I know we, we have a couple of different questions about that, but can you tell us how you got, how you got that started, how you got that rolling? Yes. Yeah, so GSIC was started by individuals here in the city that actually were working with family foundations. Um, and they had attended, this was in 2016, uh, the SOCAP conference, which is one of the largest social impact conferences in the world. It's coming up in October of 2020 in California this year. Um, and after attending that conference, a group of friends just got together and said, you know, how do we really build our ecosystem in Georgia the way that it's been built in California? Um, and it, um, initially, they did a study just to see what was going on. Uh, in Georgia and really decided to focus on impact investors. And so we have four areas that we focus on, investors, enterprises, intermediaries, 
Uh, and then we also have enablers, people who are organizations like Joy Womack that enable these social impact organizations to do the work that they do. Uh, so they, they did the study, then they did the map, and then it was decided that, okay, we need to formalize this as an organization, really make a board that can be an ecosystem builder and a convener um, and a, per, a entity that can break down silos in the state of Georgia to really make a thriving ecosystem. I mean, in Atlanta, we've kind of always been doing it unofficially with the civil rights right. movement, going right. all the way back to even um, uh, uh, Abernathy and Randolph. So even mm -hmm. before MLK uh, mm -hmm. and uh, Dodd, Maynard Jackson's grandfather. So, you know, it, I'm the first kind of official director. Uh, they worked with consultants to really get the initial uh, organization started. So now I've been brought in to really kind of put some skin around the bones right. <laughs> that have been established <laughs> uh, so that we really can not just connect Atlanta, but really connect the state. Because uh, there are awesome things going on in Savannah. There are great things going on in Columbus, wonderful things. I'm actually going to Thomasville, Georgia soon. They got some wonderful things going on down there. Uh, there are great things going on on the coast, um, on some of the sea islands for Georgia. And so really how we can all come together and build collectively. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're always stronger together than we are apart. We can always make a bigger impact that way. That's right. So how does the, the map and this ecosystem that you've identified, how does that benefit individual entrepreneurs, individual change makers in this ecosystem? Sure. So with any venture that you want to launch, you have to know the market that you're going into, right? You have to understand your customers. You have to understand who your competitors are, what type of market share that you can gain. And so our map is really like that single place that people can go to find out, okay, if I want to ta tackle hunger, who's doing that? What? Who's funding that? <laughs> are there accelerators or programs that I can go through to build and scale my idea? So it's really that one place that um, anyone can go to um, as an entrepreneur, someone who wants to start a venture in social impact, to see where they need to get started, to do some research on their market and the area they want to grow their business in. But we also really position it as a place where those who have money that they want to mobilize towards social impact, they can go and see who they can fund, uh, what deals are out there, where can they put money behind. Um, and our, our investors that we work with, whether they be actual funds or family foundations, they do nonprofits and for-profits. Uh, we also work very closely with Be Local Georgia, which is focused on uh, getting more businesses certified as a benefit corporation, which is an entity that the federal government um, have installed for those who don't don't want necessarily want to be a nonprofit, but don't want to be for-profit. They're in the middle. They're social entrepreneurs in the middle, where you can mm -hmm. also, mm -hmm. um, you know, raise venture capital funding even when you're tackling social impact. So it's really that one place where people can go to find out where they can get help, who they can partner with, where they can get funding from, and even for funders, who they can support, uh, and where, you know, if you're passionate about education, who are those organizations where you can target that support? And ultimately, big picture, as the director, how do you define success? Ooh, <laughs> so, that is a big one. Uh, really, right now, my number one priority is making sure that the narrative is clear, that we're all speaking the same thing. Uh, it's still 
a lot of education that needs to happen around what social impact is, what right. impact investing is, that it doesn't necessarily have to be nonprofit, that if you fund an organization, you can still get a return. You don't have to just give money away, which is good. We want you to give money away, but you can also get a return. So we really still need to define the narrative and define the conversation here in Georgia. Uh, secondly, is making sure that those who are doing social impact have what they need to be prepared to receive the funding. Uh, we have, as we know, a lot of times, especially for black, brown, and indigenous entrepreneurs, when we get into a space where we want to do social impact, we often get burnt out. We get burnt out from the work because it's hard to raise funding, it's hard to hire, it's hard to get help and support. And so really being able uh, to for entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs to know exactly where they can go to get help and us being positioned as that place that says, oh, I want to do something to help my community. I need to go to GSIC and see where I can get help and see who I need to connect with. Um, and then also being a convener, doing events um, and conferences around the state uh, to convene people and connect people so that deals can happen and deals can be made. So one of the things we're doing, we're doing a CDFI conference in October. A CDFI is a community development financial institution that is okay. similar to a bank, but they're an entity that essentially funds those that the banks won't fund. <laughs> um, you know, when you're going to a bank for a loan, you have to have a certain level of revenue. You need to be at a certain stage in your business. And oftentimes it takes a little longer for social impact organizations to get to that position to qualify for, a, uh, for funding from a bank. And so CDFIs are those institutions that do fund uh, before you can go to a bank. And so we're having a conference to bring those people together to say, hey, this is what this needs to look like in Georgia. Um, and I tell people all the time, one of the things that is a pet peeve of mine, people try to bring uh, Silicon Valley way to Georgia and California way to Georgia. Yes, there are some crossovers, but what they're doing in the West doesn't always work here in the South. Right. Um, right. And so really defining what social impact and impacting should look like in the South and what strategies and, and um, processes work best for us and for our ecosystem. And what's happening in the West doesn't always work for the West either. That part. <laughs> <laughs> yes. you know, they got some room to grow as well. Amen. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. So tell us a little bit more about, um, well, I, I want to come back to the ecosystem in a minute. But tell us a little bit more about how, you know, that very first step that people take when they want to embark upon this process. I mean, very often, if you've got a great idea, you know, there, one of the things that we've mentioned on the show before is that, is that our people are very creative. We've got a lot of great yeah. ideas. And so yes, the, the, the challenge, though, is, is taking that idea and taking that very first click to get like your, your, your fingernails into a seam somewhere so you can begin mm -hmm. that very first step. And for those of us, for those of our listeners who have those ideas, um, especially those who are in Georgia, but I mean, and perhaps we'll get to later about how this can be brought more broadly scaled out. But in particular, if they want to get that very first step, what would they do with you guys? So with social impact, you know, it's, it's not very different from even a regular venture. You is not necessarily about your idea. I tell my students, people don't care about your ideas. It's all about <laughs> who are you providing value for? What value are you providing to them? And how are you getting that value to them? 
Right. Now, with social impact, one of the things that I stress is you cannot go into a market with a savior mentality. People don't need mm -hmm. you to save them. Right. They, <laughs> they need you to give them a hand up. So if you're dealing with social impact, you need to figure out who are you providing value for? What value do you want to provide to them? Then you need to go to that community, whatever that community looks like. And you need to find out the assets that are already in that community. And people always want to skip that step. And that's why a lot of social impact ventures fail because they skip that step of evaluating the assets that are already in the community that you want to provide value to. Mm -hmm. And then once you evaluate those assets, you need to figure out what you're, with the value you're providing, how do you build capacity around the assets that are already there? How do you support the leaders that are already leading in that community? Uh, we have this concept of giving first, right? When you're doing social impact and not going in with a savior mentality. You know, I, I always give people the example. Um, I grew up in poverty. I grew up in a single parent home, but I also had somewhat of a privilege that I have an older sister that was in college. I grew mm -hmm. up with a lot of educators. And so I was asked to come into a neighborhood here in Atlanta to help uh, build some business support for the community. That's one of the most impoverished communities here in Atlanta, where 61% of the parents don't have a GED, where most of the felons in Georgia come from this zip code. And I, you know, came into the neighborhood initially doing what I know to do, you know, uh, setting up uh, courses and trying to provide support and connect uh, people to the concept of entrepreneurship. And we weren't getting anybody to show up. So I'm like, you know what? I need to take a step back and hit the pavement and talk to the people in this community and really see what they feel like they need to right. start a business and build a business in an area at the time had no job. There was literally, there was a Wendy's that I'm probably sure you all probably saw on the news that burned down. Mm -hmm. It was the only Wendy's and that, that was the only place people could get jobs in that community. I, um, there was a Boys and Girls Club in Hawaii. There was no grocery store at the time, not one, anywhere near this community. So mm -hmm. how how do these people, you know, build um, businesses and build wealth in this community? That's literally an opportunity desert, a food desert, an innovation desert, and all those things. And so, you know, when I would ask people, do you want to be an entrepreneur? They would tell me, no, I don't want to be an entrepreneur. I'm like, who don't want to be an entrepreneur? <laughs> and then I started changing and asking, well, do you want to work for yourself? Yeah, I want to work for myself. Yeah, I want to be on my own boss. Oh, <laughs> you don't know what an entrepreneur is. We got to come back. <laughs> so right. you have to go into a community and assess the assets that are already there, know the leaders that are already working in that community, in that space, uh, and then def really define what, based on your strengths and your ideas and your passions, who you're providing value for, what you're providing value for them, and based on what's in the community, how you can get that value to them in a way that will really connect with that community. Uh, so, you know, we can't, we have to get rid of this savior mentality. We often go in, even as black people, when it mm -hmm. comes to social impact. Staying in that zip code for a second, what is the social outcome that you would like to see there? And how can you bring capital to that solution? In that zip code and others like it, personally, I believe that every single person on this earth has passions, has strengths, have gifts that they can use to create a thriving life for themselves. And so I would like to see people 
go into that community and partner alongside the people who live in that community and find out what their strengths are, what they're passionate about, what their gifts are, and then show them, not that we need to monetize everything we're passionate about, but helping them to understand what they have a talent or gift around that can connect to a viable market and how they can build a business and a life for themselves around that. Um, I would like to see more cooperative business models with just something that Dr. Leon Pareto at Clayton State University um, talks about a lot. But I would like to see more people coming in and going alongside the people that already live in that community. What's happening there and what's happening in a lot of zip codes like it is that people are, once again, getting people who are not indigenous to that community to move in and gentrifying it, essentially. You know, mm -hmm. I keep it 100. We use the mm -hmm. language and call a spade a spade. <laughs> These communities are being gentrified and the indigenous mm -hmm. people in those communities are being pushed out instead of coming in and saying, what do you like? Those people know what they need to make their community thrive. They know what they need. We know what we need for our own communities. And I was even thinking about this last night. You know, we have a lot of well-meaning white people that, you know, oh, I'm going to start an entity to help this community that I see that needs help. But why not just find out who's already doing it and coming alongside them and giving them the resources and giving them the support instead of you starting a whole new entity and expecting them to jump on board with your thing when they probably already been doing it longer than you. Right. Like what, what harm is it than you stepping back and saying, you know what, instead of me starting a new thing, let me find out who's already doing this and give them my help and my support and my money. First of all, I mean, this is all fantastic. And these are all good lessons for all of us. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of people who are well-meaning and yeah. mm -hmm. who with the right heart and even in many cases, the right idea, the right method, but mm -hmm. method and approach are different, you know? Right. And so, you know, these are, these are really um, valuable things to hear. I guess what I want to zoom out a little bit because even though I, 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 I agree with BC and that I think that, you know, I, I, we love Atlanta and, and it's one of those things to where, you know, you know, I, th I think one of the places where, you know, when we talk about Wakanda, you know, instantiating in, in, in reality, you know, it's one where we all can just be and a place yes. where we all not only can we, where we can just be, but yeah, also right. to where, the things that are important to us and our culture and our sensibilities are 100% co-equal with all the other ones. One we're not, a, not like we're not, we're not anti anybody or not, you know, saying that, nope. stuff, that you, you can't have this, but it's more like all these things are co-equal. Um, yes. And, and part of that to me is taking some of the ideas you just mentioned and perhaps scaling them out and having other people adopt them. You know, what are some of the things you guys are learning? And obviously, as you said at the outset, you know, certain things apply to certain groups and certain right. specific situations. What works, what works here in Southern California, where I am, isn't going to necessarily work there. And what, and what, what, what works there is necessarily going to work here. However, I think there's some lessons learned 
I mean, mm-hmm. in particular, you know, you know, you know, evaluating the assets of the local community prior to jumping in, you know, you know, parachuting in with with your brilliant idea. Um, yeah. I mean, but what are some things you think are learning are, are some lessons you're learning that you can maybe say, hey, look, these are some things that we found that are working, you know, very broadly. I mean, specific mm-hmm. impl- implementations are going to be very specific and local. But, you know, what do you think? What do you think you're some, there's some lessons that you might be able to provide for others who want to do something similar to what you're doing? Three things. <laughs> Three things I can lay out really quickly. So <laughs> we often hear that Black, Brown, and Indigenous entrepreneurs are often um, over-mentored and underfunded. So one, they need money. <laughs> you know, because people always, especially because I work in the Atlanta University Center with HBCUs, you know, they see all this money flooding to HBCUs. They're like, well, you know, it's not a money problem. HBCUs are getting money. Um, but when you look at the amount of money that the federal government gives to universities and colleges as a whole, HBCUs get 3% of that funding. 3%. So for us to even be equal with PWIs, I mean, I always say, well, can we at least get that funding to 15%? We 13% of the population. Can, can we at least get that? You know, it don't right. necessarily have to be 50%. I know 50% would be nice because we built this country. That would be really great. But can we at least get 13, 15% of the funding that the federal government gives to university and colleges instead of 3%? There's still a long way for us to go when it comes to funding for entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs, black and brown entrepreneurs and indigenous entrepreneurs get like 2% of investment funding. Uh, everybody made all those promises in 2020, but then when the numbers came out in 2021, it actually went down to like 1.98%. Again, can we at least get that funding up to 13, 15%? There's absolutely no reason for venture capital to be 98% white male. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can we increase those hires? Can we give more money to... um, Black investors, like we see a lot of black people starting venture capital funds, impact investing funds, but you know, they're raising like 15 million, maybe even up to 60 million dollar funds. Mm-hmm. But our white male counterparts are raising 400 million, 500 million, one billion dollar right. funds. <laughs> so we need, we need money. Let's start there. Number two, access to market and opportunity. One of the things, again, that Maynard did. He required, you want to expand the airport? Great. Certain percentage of the contractors you're using to build and expand this airport need to be Black. So giving Black, Brown, and Indigenous entrepreneurs access to corporate contracts, making mm-hmm. sure that you're providing them the support to be ready, to be able to fill out the paperwork. Uh, we really need to dis- demystify federal contracts. Uh, the government is one of the largest consumers of businesses. And, and people don't, a lot of people don't know this. The five wealthiest black communities in America are in Maryland. Five. Why? Because Maryland is right near D.C. And a lot of those businesses are doing federal contracting. Right. So we need to really demystify corporate and government contracting. And um, black, brown, indigenous fo- founders need sponsors to help them get those contracts. And then lastly, we need to put entrepreneurial social impact training, impact investing training into our schools. It needs to start at elementary, 
uh, middle school, high school. There's a, a lady I know um, in, in, I believe she's in Denmark, in Denmark, and she takes um, elementary school kids through the design thinking process where they pick nice. an issue in their community and they go through the design thinking process and build a business solution for an issue in their community. We're talking, she's working with five, six-year-olds. We need that in our school system. Mm-hmm. Amen. Uh, we need to be able to take our students, have them identify an issue in their community or in their school that they want to see improve and th- take them through the process to build a solution. And also, why not put more gardens at our schools where our students can learn to feed themselves and build their own food? Uh, there's an alum from Morehouse that has discovered this science called geological agriculture, where you can build food, you can grow food with just rocks and sand. And he talks about in his book how you can eliminate hunger with a six foot table. If you have a six foot table in your house, you can begin to plant things with just river rocks and, and, and cups and water. Wait, 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 and wait, what, someone what? can feed themselves at home. It's called geological agriculture. His name is Richard Campbell. He is a Lord. Morehouse alum. Mm-hmm. He has a book that explains his whole science. Uh, and he even sells um, the grow cups, where it's just little cups with the holes in them where you mm-hmm. can be, you can grow, um, start off with microgreens. You can take seeds, um, but he's grown squash, tomatoes, potatoes, um, cabbage, collard greens, uh, literally with rocks and sand. You don't wow. you don't need soil uh, to necessarily grow plants. Mm, you so, can't tell this brother nothing. Lord have mercy. <laughs> so those the three things to recap. We need money. <laughs> we need access to corporate and government contracts. And we need to put entrepreneurial and innovation training into our school system. I love it. I love it. And I agree hundred percent. Oh, and let me also say caveat, not just doing business plan competitions with these kids. Mm-hmm. I'm over just the, you do a business plan and the kids don't do anything with it. Partner them with mentors that can actually have them turn those ideas into real businesses. They can start businesses when they're children, right? They don't have to wait to become an adult to do so. They just need the right support. I agree. Amen. Amen. The Georgia Social Impact Collaborative clearly has the right person in the driver's seat. Seriously. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's turn to your journey for a second. How in the world did you get to this particular point? How did you get to where you are now? So I have a very interesting journey, like most entrepreneurs kind of, you know, then it hasn't been a straight line. It's kind of circle thing. So, uh, born and raised in Atlanta, in the city, um, in uh, the Ben Hill neighborhood of Atlanta, not too far, like 10 minutes from the airport. And my upbringing was very Afrocentric, even in my school. Like we learned, um, I was learning Swahili, we learned African drums, African dance. So my upbringing in the city, we would go down to Arbit Avenue and listen to the African griot tell African stories. So my upbringing was very Afrocentric. Um, And like I said, I also grew up around educators. My godmother uh, was a special education education teacher in the city. She's also a Mars Brown alum. Shout out to Mars Brown. Mars Brown raised me. I will tell anybody that even though I went to Hampton University, the standard of excellence, Mars Brown raised me. (laughs) So, um, but I come from a musical family and I thought that would be my route. So I went to performing arts high school. I spent 17 years in the entertainment industry um, and even initially went to college uh, to study music engineering. And at the time I was working with a lot of entertainment entrepreneurs 
in uh, the Hampton Roads area in Virginia. And I literally took entrepreneurship as an elective and fell in love. And at the time, Hampton was one of the first HBCUs to have entrepreneurship as a major. And so this was early 2000s. Now in 2022, we still only have nine HBCUs that have any type of entrepreneurial program. So that's something we got to work on too. But I ended up taking entrepreneurship as an elective. I changed my major to entrepreneurship because I was like, my people don't know this information and I need to make sure my people know this information. Um, And the chair of my department was a former venture capitalist. So he taught us from that perspective. Fast forward, I moved back to Atlanta after graduate school, was still working in entertainment. But because of my educational background, people started asking me to judge pitch competitions and host boot camps uh, in entrepreneurship. And I started to see the gap between our PWIs and our HBCUs. And as an HBCU alum, I said, I'm making fixes. <laughs> so I changed gears. I had a coaching practice working with entertainment entrepreneurs. I'm a certified business coach. And I literally cold called a professor at Morehouse that I had met when I started my doctorate and was like, can I help in your class? <laughs> we got to help the base. We got to help them. And she said, yes, because at Morehouse and Spelman, they don't have graduate programs. So they had they don't have teaching assistants. So she was like, yes, please come help me in my class. So I started out in uh, the leadership and professional development class at Morehouse, coach teaching that. I then got hired at Clark Atlanta University to build out their innovation lab. And uh, we introduced students to 3D printing, drone technology, AR, VR, teaching students how to code that were not STEM majors, hosting hackathons. Uh, and then Morehouse asked me to come back to be over a student development for the business school where I led 40 co-curricular initiatives for the business department at Morehouse. And in that role, I launched the very first cohort of HBCU VC, which trains HBCU students to be venture capitalists. Uh, HBCU VC then asked me to come um, lead that fellowship program, wrote out their curriculum, expanded the fellowship program to six additional HBCUs. Um, And this was around the time of summer 2020 (laughs) when everything happened with Breonna Taylor, George Floyd and Mm -hmm. everybody else. Lord help our justice system. And um, Morehouse called and asked me to come back. Um, And I worked on a project with Morehouse where I was leading student programs for the Innovation Entrepreneurship Center, but also working with all minority serving institutions in the Southeast uh, to build capacity around their innovation and entrepreneurship programs. So I was working across eight states. Uh, part of that, I worked very closely with the social entrepreneurship program at Emory University with Brian Goble, one of my good buddies, shout out to Emory University. And he posted this position um on LinkedIn and I wasn't necessarily looking for another role but you know I'm in the community I'm doing the work I'm trying to connect my students with all the great resources we have in the city to help them build their businesses so Mm -hmm. you know I shot my shot as we say (laughs) and applied just to see what happened and I got the role but it's amazing because one it allows me to serve my home state in this capacity Mm -hmm. And, and you know I don't consider it a coincidence that I grew up in the city, um, understanding the impact of Martin Luther King Day became a holiday the year I was born, 1983. And I don't take that lightly that my journey took me from growing up in the city and Ben Hill to then working at Morehouse College to now being able to really serve my state in this capacity, even uh, supporting the King Center is doing a youth entrepreneurship program 
later this month in July, and I'm helping to support that with Brian uh, from Emory University. And so uh, it's an honor to be able to do this. And I realized in my work with the community, with HBCUVC, I met a lot of Black impact investors. And I'm like, I know a lot of social entrepreneurs that don't know y'all exist. <laughs> so, you know, I got a passion to really connect those communities. Uh, and then also in the neighborhood I was talking about and doing this work in our community, I realized that I could not do economic justice without doing racial justice. And then also right. we understand now that we can't have sustainability without justice. That sustainability is a byproduct of justice. Uh, and Martin Luther King understood that. And so it, it's just an honor, you know, that my journey and path has taken me this way when I really was just trying to work in the entertainment. <laughs> I was just trying to, you know, sing and, and help entrepreneurs in entertainment build successful entertainment businesses. Uh, but, you know, so I you're don't, saying this was like a funny thing that happened away. on your way to getting an Oscar? I guess, yes. <laughs> right? So, you know, so, you know, now I'm able to serve as director for the Judge of Social Impact Collaborative. I did go back to my media roots. Um, I have a business called Consciously Funded, which is positioned to amplify Black and Indigenous voices of social impact, utilizing digital media. We have a fellowship program called Liberation Impact Fellowship, where we're training Black and Indigenous students in social enterprises, sustainable cities, and impact investing. Um, and then I teach entrepreneurship at Morehouse College, and I get to, um, I tell my students, you know, we're trying to build the next generation of Martin Luther Kings, of Robert Smiths. Of, right you know, all these people that have done great things, but really take it to the next level. People don't know that out of all the venture capitalists in the venture capital industry that graduated from an HBCU, 40 percent come out of Morehouse. And so it's like we're already producing that talent. Why not scale it? And then Spelman is in the top five, you know, so we're in the right place uh, to really uh, be an example to the world. You know, that we have a saying here in Atlanta that. As the South, so goes the nation. I mean, we saw that even with the Civil War. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I believe that Georgia is in prime position to really make an impact and be an example to the world of, you know, yep. when you have a community that was brought here, uh, when you have a community of people whose land was taken for them and stolen, um, how do you rise again? How do you become that phoenix that rise from the ashes and build a thriving and sustainable life in a sustainable society? I truly believe that Georgia Social Impact Collaborative and the and our historically black colleges and universities, such as the Atlanta University Center, can still be an example of that. This is all fantastic. This is, I mean, I'm 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 blown away. First of all, just hearing your story, I'm kind of like, okay, I like got coffee today. I mean, when do you when do you sleep? Right? Uh, yeah, you know, sleep. <laughs> and, and I tell you know, I think it's important to say like. I have really been blessed. I do this with a chronic illness. I deal with fibromyalgia, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, can leave you bedridden for reasons. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I still have the strength, you know, through my faith, through lots of prayer, through my support system. I keep a strong support system around me. Um, I have mentors that mentor me in middle school that I still call on and talk to. Uh, nice. So having that community, we can't do this by ourselves. Success happens in community. And it's important that I keep my community around me uh, to help me do the work that I do. Um, we're serving, um, you know, young people this week. We're kicking off our youth entrepreneurship program uh, to really serve uh, students in that same zip code I was telling you all about. Yeah. Uh, so it, this doesn't happen by myself. It definitely happens in community. It happens with us working together 
um, and with us opening doors for each other. So that's it's it's all fantastic, you know. Amen. Um, Amen. Obviously, I mean, you're on the show, so we're clearly a big fan. But um, <laughs> but also, you know, tell us how not only for us directly, I mean, because we're going to like, you know, continue to, to, to wave the flag for you guys, but, Thanks. but, you know, for, for our listeners who aren't in the Atlanta area, um, yep. you know, what, what can we as a mm-hmm. larger group, what can we do to support you? What can we do to, to help further your mission? You know, what, what can we do to help? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're definitely looking for national funders <laughs> okay. that can support the work and help us uh, to scale the ecosystem here. Uh, that's why, you know, we're going to SOCAP um, and we're looking to participate uh, in some of the conversations that will be going on at SOCAP. So definitely uh, go to our website. If you know someone who is not on our ecosystem map, contact us and let us know so that we can get them on the ecosystem map. Uh, you can donate to us at georgiasocialimpact.com. Uh, we're definitely looking for funders and, and people also that we can support um, and connect as an ecosystem. Uh, then also with Consciously Funded, uh, I'm looking to connect with any historically Black college and university, any tribal college globally uh, to support students and give them the training, the resources, the mentors that they need to build um, businesses and to fund businesses in the uh, United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals. So if you have any relationships with HBCUs or or indigenous communities around the world, uh, black colleges around the world, even in Africa, I'm looking to connect because I have the network uh, to be able um, to support these students and make sure they have what they need to build viable business and fund viable business. We need more impact investors that are black and indigenous. Um, And then also, you know, support our HBCUs, give to our HBCUs, fund them, um, speak to classes, find professors are listed on the website. Find a professor whose class you can speak in, come to homecoming and do sessions, participate in the career fairs. Uh, our students need exposure. You know, uh, we talk mm-hmm. about our students coming from innovation deserts. Oftentimes it's just exposure. And that's what college did for me. Um, I had, you know, I didn't really know a lot of entrepreneurs. I didn't even know what venture capital was until I went to college. Um, and so support scholarships for students to attend HBCUs. We know because Many of our HBCUs are private. You know, oftentimes students can't afford to go. But right. to be in a place where you can just be, you have your whole life uh, to be looked at as a minority. We are the global majority. But, you know, being able to go to an HBCU and be in a place where you can just be, uh, where you are expected to excel, where you are expected to succeed. So please support scholarships, uh, support programs like uh, UNCF and the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. Uh, that's how you can support my work by supporting these students and helping us build the next generation, but also send us money, <laughs> send us <laughs> checks. You can, you can fund um, the Liberation Impact Fellowship. We are fiscally sponsored by Social Good Fund, so you can also donate um, to the Liberation Impact Fellowship and support a student to go uh, through the program and through our pitch competitions to uh, start a business or start a, their own fund in Impact. Right on, man. This is fantastic. And we'll definitely make sure we get the word out. No, I just want to say uh, thank you all for having me on the show. Thank you to Joy Womack of the Intentionally Good Project, to 
um, the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta for giving me this opportunity to work with George Social Impact. And shout out to my husband who supports me in this work. <laughs> he works at the, he's the program manager for the Russell Innovation Center for Entrepreneurs. If you don't know who H.J. Russell is, look up that Russell family in Atlanta. Um, so shout out for all his support and all he's doing to support entrepreneurs um, at Rice and Jay Bailey. Uh, I'm just so thankful to the ecosystem we have here in Atlanta and the work that we're doing. Fantastic. Yeah. Shout out to the supportive husbands, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Lavanya, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Lavanya Jones is the new director of Georgia Social Impact Collaborative. You can find out more about them at GeorgiaSocialImpact.com, GASocialImpact.com, and sign up for our newsletter. Amen. Well, Lavanya, thank you again so much for, for being on our all. show. We mm -hmm. definitely hope that we'll catch you when you're here uh, on yes. the West Coast. And we are really appreciative to having you here on Sky is Black. Right person at the right time. That's right. Thank you all so much. It's an honor. The honor is ours. Thank you, you very bless much. You. Bless you. Bless you. All right. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye. Bye-bye. And just as advertised, she was awesome. Yeah, she was fantastic. Amen. And you can find out more about Lavanya, Dr. Lavanya, mm -hmm. and find out more about the Georgia Social Impact Collaborative. G-Sick in effect. At GASocialImpact.com. So G-A for Georgia, SocialImpact.com. You know, she... We were talking earlier about HBCU uh, mm -hmm. alumni, and mm -hmm. she's a third-generation HBCU graduate. And so when you think about, like, you know, how we all move forward, and for mm -hmm. those of you who are kind of like, oh, you know, do we really need HBCUs and things like that, you know, she's... Hell to the yeah. Yeah, she's, she is a, a living example of the kind of ongoing legacy mm -hmm. that, that these schools produce. And Amen. she is exactly the type of innovator that... And, and leader that we are highlighting here on Sky is Black. Right person in the right spot. Yeah, and she's really fantastic. And so, you know, thank you, Dr. Lavanya. Mm -hmm. And also thank you, listener, for um, for listening to us here on Sky is Black. We highlight innovators, experts, and entrepreneurs of African descent throughout the entire Pan-African diaspora. Mm -hmm. And if you know of someone who's doing something amazing, please reach out to us. At the top of the show, we, we gave you our ways of reaching us uh, on social media but you can email us directly at anton at skiesblack.com and reach you at b francis clark at skiesblack.com so please reach out to us and give us your feedback give us your ideas of people we should highlight and shine our little spotlight on and we look forward to having you join us here again on skies black not about me it's not about bc but it's about all of us moving forward and heading towards wakanda amen so thanks you for listening and we will see you soon here on sky is black sky is lavanya sky is ecosystem just that map sky is legos <laughs> seriously sky is black sky is lavanya <laughs>